to the Liberal Europe podcast, the European Liberal Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Ted Hudo. Ted is executive manager of the Agenda Think Tank, which is part of the Svenska Bildungsförbundet. And I apologize to our Swedish and Finn friends if I didn't say that correctly, but SBF brings together the Swedish-speaking and bilingual population in Finland. And after our conversation, I'll introduce you to some of the events organized by ELF for the first two weeks of November. I'm here with Ted Hurro. Ted, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And before we go to the topic of our conversation, which is minorities and liberal values and liberal policies, I would like you to tell us a little bit about yourself. What happened in your life that got you to this point? Was there any moment in particular? Was this always with you? I've been a liberal for over 20 years. Um, I had a liberal awakening way back in high school when a gang of us sort of uh, got together, formed the uh, student body council, all of these things. And then from there, we sort of found different uh, education unions and so forth and so forth, uh, organizations rather than unions. And um, I became slightly active within party politics as well in a liberal youth organization. Um, student politics at university, of course, and then I spent uh, over 10 years at uh, the state broadcaster, the public uh, public service broadcaster in Finland uh, called Ule, and worked as a journalist there for 10 years. I did a breakfast show for five years, so for five years I got up at 5 a.m. every single morning, well, not Saturdays and Sundays, and then uh, as of uh, January 1st this year, I've been the executive manager of the Think Tank Agenda. You mentioned that you're a journalism and we'll be touching about that in a second, but you also said that you dwelled into party politics. Is that still very present in your life or is something or are you more into activism and less into the political life? I know they're interchangeable, but you can dedicate yourself more to politics and apparently you didn't make that decision. No, I, I, for instance, like this, I've never run for public office. Uh, I've always tried to sort of work in the background, or not work in the background, but, but be in the support groups and so forth and so forth. And I don't, I'm not uh, a member of a political party uh, directly. I'm a member of a political organization, though. And I work in an organization which is not uh, a political party, but in the vicinity of a political party as a foundation. And I, I, for me personally, this, uh, this works out really well. Because um, I've always been interested in, in societal affairs and as a journalist I covered them and commented on them. And now uh, as an executive manager of a think tank uh, which is, is dedicated to liberal Nordic values and of course the Swedish language and minority questions. I have a possibility to sort of generate public discussion on important topics. So that's, that's what I'm, I'm really, really being comfortable with uh, doing right now. So one more question about you then, and that is, has to do with journalism, because you just mentioned that you spent 10 years being a journalist. And let me say to our listeners how much um, merit you have of waking up so early every <laughs> single day. But uh, this part, how much, how much this contributes then to your awareness of these topics? Is it, something, is it something that you look for? Is it something that will come to you, that people talk to you? Tell us all about it. I have a lot, I think, I think um, a lot of my current uh, interest for society stems from, from my days as a journalist. On the other hand, my days as a journalist stems from my interest in societal affairs. Uh, but what I still do is, is whenever I see a topic which is interesting, I start thinking about this. I'm st I start thinking about it. Why is this interesting? What would be interesting to know about this? Uh, who would be interested in hearing about this? And this is how I, I run the think tank as well. When we organize events uh, or when we, when we uh, work on 
future publications. I think what's what's in it for the audience because our audience for the think tank is the broader, the general public, the Swedish speaking, the Finnish speaking. We're a bilingual uh, think tank, and and the, the the broader, the important issue here is what's what's in it for the audience, for the for, for people in society. Uh, how can we? generate public discussion on important issues and important topics that are within the liberal agenda. Well, let's hope that journalism stays that way and just doesn't go into the, the path that it, we've been seeing lately. But let's change topics, topics and that is, uh, first I want you to uh, challenge you to describe what we're going to mean by minorities in the context of this conversation. Um, I'm going to use myself as an example because I am part of two minorities, in fact. Uh, I am both a part of a sexual minority as a gay man and I'm part of a language minority. Finland is a bilingual country where approximately five million inhabitants and uh, five, six percent speak Swedish and 90 percent, 92 percent speak Finnish and then there's a couple of percent uh, that speak other languages than these these aforementioned. So I know exactly what it's like to be a minority and, and the, maybe the most important thing to remember when you're part of a majority is that a minority can never survive without the goodwill of the majority. So uh, as a sexual minority, as a member of the LGBTI community, um, I don't really need to fight that much for my rights anymore because in Finland we've been accorded all the rights that are, are accordable. Um, but as a language minority, I still need to constantly remind other people in our country of our existence. This is how I would define a, a minority. That they use. Let's, let's put it this way. I would define a minority as somebody who has to constantly remind others of their existence. Okay, and that leads us to liberalism. And uh, when we saw Clis when we see classical liberalism, that is, well, when I mean classical regarding time, so the ancient liberalism, let's call it that way, uh, that was one of the great battles, and that was not to have the rule of the majority over other minorities, and because of that, they, they will lose their freedom and their voice. So, uh, in your experience, and you just mentioned that it, it, it is personal, uh, how do you see liberalism then both historically and now presently dealing with this with these questions as in uh, context of minorities yes so f let me add a little more maybe for the question so for example when you look at Europe and you just said and fortunately so in Finland there was a lot of progress for equality as for example in other countries um, but still there's this underlying that populists use and anti-liberal people use so how do you see liberalism as it is right now protecting against safeguarding against those uh, those initiatives well i mean considering that liberalism the fundament of liberalism is uh, is the belief of, of rule uh, belief in, in rule of law human rights uh, freedom uh, the freedom of the in individual uh, so i think that in that sense liberalism supports the rights of minorities a lot because the worst thing you can do to a minority is to oppress that minority uh, and there's not really in many cases, there's no real reason for oppressing the minorities other than uh, staunching your own power position by, by focusing the public's attention from your own defects as, a, for instance, a ruling party at, oh, but look at them, they're coming here, they're going to take our jobs and, and they're going to do this and they're going to do that and look at their odd ways and did you know that they dress like that and so forth and so forth. And, and that means that the general public um, sometimes 
look at that way, it's like, yeah, that's really annoying. Yeah, that's really annoying. And in, in a sense, disregarding the problems with the, the, those in power at the moment. So it's, I think it's the worst thing you can do to a minority is to use them as a weapon uh, in order to, to, to keep you yourself in, in power. And there I think liberalism is very important because liberalism provides us all with uh, the cover of rule of law, for instance. That's a very good point, but I'm going to push you a little bit on that. How much liberalism is too much liberalism? So you just exactly mentioned someone looking at a minority and say, oh, look at those people. But we are all one of those people. So when it, when it, when it stops to you, is there any moment that you said, okay, this is a line that we're not going to cross from here? Or do you believe more that should be really like full equality between groups. What's your take on that? My take on this is that as a liberal, I am of course not in favor of uh, preferred treatment. I do believe that everybody should uh, manage on their own and I do believe that everybody uh, should make their own decisions and should be accorded the possibility to, to do that, do so. But um, we still have and I guess, I guess this is the Scandinavian part of me speaking because I do still believe that we have um, we have a need to, to protect those who are weaker. And, and for instance, if you belong to a minority, for instance, a sexual minority in a very uh, religious country, then you're not, even though you look like everybody else, you're going to have uh, the church fighting you. And it's very, very difficult to fight back if you're just one person. It's very, very, ba very, very difficult to fight back if you're just 10, 15 people. But if you get the support of the majority, then it's a different thing. For instance, pride marches are very, very important in the sense that pride in Europe today is a fantastic affair. It's a parade of love. Uh, and you have all these people in all age ranges and, and, and from all various backgrounds expressing themselves colorful makeup, uh, high heels, drag queens, you name it, they're, they're there. But that's only on Main Street. As soon as the Pride Parade is over, as soon as Pride Sunday is over, these people are going to sit themselves on the tram, on the tube, they're going to take off their makeup, they're going to take off their hair extension, their high heels, and they're going to go back into a possible closet and they're going to be just who society expects them to be. And that's the whole point of liberalism in, in consideration to minorities, is that if you belong to a minority, you're supposed to be allowed to express yourself in your own language, in your own color, in your own mentality. Absolutely, and have the freedom to do it without oppression. Now, uh, let's change a little bit here uh, the topic, and I want you to tell our listeners some of the attacks on minorities that you have been paying more close attention. And you and I were in an event in Poland not too long ago, and we saw what is happening in that country in particular, and how worrisome it is, the language, the attacks, the, the physical manifestations of hate. So again, like I was saying in the beginning, it's different all over Europe, yes, but let's focus on the areas where there's more need. Well, for instance, um, in Poland, uh, the, the Catholic Church is very, very strong and the Catholic Church stands on, on homosexuality is, of course, that it's a sin. And, and that is, uh, for, for, from a secular point of view, for me, for instance, I, I, it's, it's unbelievable, it's ununderstandable. Um, and it's, it's, it's very hard for me to understand why an organization which encompasses 1.2 billion people feels the need to point out a few homosexuals as sinners as the problem because 
visiting Poland last weekend was very eye-opening because I've never uh, I've never f- heard this discussion bebo- before and I've never sort of dwelt on the on the topic but the fact is that the fundament of the Catholic Church uh, is the family and apparently the Catholic Church sees homosexual men and women as a threat to the family unit and that's that's a problem but on the other hand that doesn't f- fit well with my worldview because I see the individual liberties of everybody as the most important thing. So if you don't want to have a family, you're, you're, not, you're not supposed to have a family. Uh, and this goes out into, into uh, an issue of feminism as well, that you don't need to... The female body shouldn't be seen as a vessel to carry children. It should be <laughs> seen as an individual person. Absolutely, and secularization, another liberal value, so important in these situations. S- um, let me just track back a little bit because I thought it was really interesting what you uh, said about the Catholic Church, and the same applies to the Protestants and the and the Muslims. So that's not a, too much of a difference there. What I've uh, been listening to, and you yourself also, which is that some far right groups are actually using that as a tool to, in this particular fight against another minority, which is, for example, immigrants. So uh, just very quickly for our listeners, so imagine a far-right group saying, yes, we're going to do contacts with the LGBT community, we're going to recruit them to our group because, hey, Muslims are bad for you. What's your, what, what are your thoughts on that? I How insidious <laughs> that is. <laughs> I find it appalling. I'm going to give you an example from uh, Helsinki politics. Um, a few years back, it was the, f- the, the former city council. Um, there was a suggestion from, one of the na- from the Nationalist Party, which is now currently the biggest party in Finland, not in government though, but in the polls there are 20%. Um, there was a suggestion uh, for, um, for a statue of Thomas Finland. Thomas Finland is today one of Finland's most famous artists, uh, created a lot of uh, homoerotica, which um, in his day, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, was considered smut, porn and forbidden. Um, but what he did was uh, he drew the male figure as a real strong man male figure with lots and lots of muscles, whereas the image of the gay man before that had been very um, feminized. And he, he, he contravened this and, and drew the, f- the male body as it was, like very muscular. And uh, he died 25, uh, 30 years ago. And so this uh, councillor suggested that, wait, why don't we build a statue for him? Why don't we erect a statue for Tom of Finland uh, next to Mannerheim, who is the national hero? And uh, this would be a great way of showing off, you know, Finnish culture and Finnish arts and, and see how what a progressive society uh, we are. And had, it, had that suggestion come from a... Uh, traditional politician or a liberal politician, I would have applauded it because I would have thought that, hey, this is a really good thing. We have Tom of Finland on stamps, sheets, uh, coffee pots, every mugs everywhere. He's everywhere in Finland. He's an icon, uh, or his drawings, rather. But because it came from the populist one, from the nationalist one, who has a very xenophobic agenda when it comes to immigration, especially Muslim and Islam, uh, Islamistic uh, immigration, Everybody knew that he just wanted that statue in order to annoy the Muslim population of Helsinki. And this, of course, makes me very divided because I don't, I don't want to be a tool in this fight. I don't want you to use my sexuality and my minority status as a tool in this fight. So it's, it's very, very offensive to me. And unfortunately, we don't have a, a Tom of Finland statue in Helsinki right now, but I do wish we had one, but for the right reasons. Let's uh, continue here a little bit and that, uh, that you just mentioned and that is free expression and liberty and uh, protection of minorities. So in your opinion, when you have a minority that will go against another minority, so imagine, 
and this is not in particular the Muslim community because as we mentioned Catholics do this and Protestants do this too but how do you deal then with that of course the the logical explanation will be education will be empathy will be contact but when things get polarized what do you think will be the solution then for that problem uh, meetings be between people I think this is the key this is the solution because um, prejudice and and butting and battling uh, minorities against each other works only when uh, you sort of divide people into us and them and you divide this into like you know say like uh, oh look what they're doing and, and what do you think they will think of this and oh what do you think you know what do you think what do you think and um, and in order to, to avoid these sort of situations, it will be very important to bring people together. So, for instance, what I do is I, I regularly visit schools and uh, I do a presentation on, on LGBTI rights from my own perspective. I especially visited like schools I've been to. And in order to, to for the students to connect and see that, you know, this guy, he went to school here for like 20 years ago and now he's this guy. And it's like, oh, okay, he's, he's gay and he's, he's cool. And what I do is, is uh, and this is very important because uh, the LGB part the cis persons uh, within the rainbow umbrella, we've been accorded most rights already. The situation is pretty good. We need to look at transgender people. We need to look at intersex people. Those who are still being hunted down in many countries and killed, uh, uh, especially trans people of color. This is a huge, the, 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 there have been several, several murders. Uh, already just this year, hundreds of people who have died and been killed uh, just because they're trans and they are persons of color. So my question to you is, apart from the normality, and that is people will look at you and say, hey, I've been, I've been friends, I've been colleague with a gay man for 20 years now, and I, I never thought about that. Is there, again, a frontier for um, too much liberalism where imagine that, again, you just mentioned gay pride, and that is a major uh, conquest and a very positive one. But do you think then that this interrelation between these different groups of course there should be a sensitivity then to the other people not to be too offensive right away just for being politically incorrect do you agree with that I'm gonna I'm gonna but uh, pose a, a, a question what is normality what is what is normal who gets to decide what normal is that's a great point <laughs> point taken in, in my world it's important that everybody uh, gets to be themselves I don't, I don't necessarily agree with everything that people say. I don't agree with the way people dress or they, how they act or, or whatevs. But for me, the most important thing is that uh, what the millennials say is, the millennials say, you do you, I'll do me. And I think this, is, this should be the new motto for liberalism in the 21st century. Tell us then how can people get more involved? How can they be of influence not only exactly as we were talking about, and that is behaving normally, and I'm doing the quotas with my fingers to our listeners, but also in, in NGOs, in communities. Tell us again from your experience, how can people help? By looking at things from the other perspective, by, by, by asking yourselves, how would this make me feel? And putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. And this has been, that was actually one of the things that I've had a lot of uh, good from my career as a journalist because as a journalist I always had to put myself uh, when I had a debate in the studio for instance I was uh, at a radio breakfast show I always needed to view the issue from both sides I could never because as a journalist you can't take sides not if you're a good journalist uh, at least so, uh, <laughs> so what I did was I always looked at my uh, from we the have both to talk sides. about journalism in one of this one of 
next podcast. So what what I would suggest is that if if you encounter a situation where you feel that somebody is is off, they're weird, they don't fit into your model, your perception of reality, take a look at it from their perspective. How do you think it would feel to be be a six foot six foot tall uh, man in drag, for instance, or not even that? Just how do you think it would feel if uh, every day you go to work you can't talk your own language? We have this situation in Finland because well we're five six percent Swedish speakers and, and majority is, is Finnish speakers and we we just published a report earlier this year uh, where we asked over a thousand Swedish speakers in Finland how they felt that the language situation is right now and a lot of people uh, who come from uh, totally Swedish speaking families but for instance work in a Finnish uh, office where the office language is Finnish and they found that if they have a colleague another Swedish speaking colleague and they would go into the break room and have a cup of coffee um, and they would speak Swedish there. A third colleague could come in and say, hey guys, stop talking that silly secret language of yours. This is Finland and we speak Finnish here. Before you say that, would you, would you for, for like a few seconds even consider what it would be like to always have to fight for your right to speak your own language, to not see your own language uh, in the in the streets. Um, okay, well street signs are, are both Finnish and Swedish in, in, in major cities and most cities. Uh, but I mean, going to a hospital, going to healthcare, so forth and so forth, going to elder care, and not being able to speak your own language, but rather a language which is not yours, but which you've learned in school. Well, multiculturalism, it's a way to solve it. I'm, I'm be, me f- being from the sports world, there is this fantastic example, and you sh- should know as a Finn, which is the locker rooms of the ice hockey teams in America. Because some are Russian, some are Finn, some are Swedes. <laughs> <laughs> and they're talking, and, and, and then actually people start getting interested. It's like, whoa, that language that you're speaking, I, d- I may not understand it, but I understand that, that you will speak it. Because first of all, it's your first language. And then the second of all, if you... I- even if it's just a question of feeling the need to, to, to do it because uh, for us multi-language people sometimes it's just funny to speak French and, and you want to do it and, and that's it but uh, is that a reality that uh, you were just mentioning a minute ago and I thought it was really interesting so it, that causes problem when you go to the hospital when you go to a service it could ca- it could cause problems it could it could in the sense that um, for instance my, my first language is, is uh, Swedish uh, and if I go to a hospital and there are no Swedish speaking doctors or, or nurses at, at there uh, at the hospital then I'm gonna of course I'm gonna have to explain my situation in Finnish and I mean I barely know what my different body parts and especially in the internal organs what they're called in Swedish uh, what if I'm in, 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 in sepsis I'm in shock I'm in a status of shock uh, how do I explain that you know my spleen hurts or my liver hurts or is it my heart is it my my tibia is it my earlobe what uh, all of these things I mean I, I barely know these words in Swedish how am I supposed to know them in Finnish and then uh, in the research we did uh, we got a lot of open answers there were a lot of people who said that that doctors mocked them for not knowing the right words they mocked them from the perspective that oh God's sake, so can't you even speak Finnish person? You, you, And it's like, yeah, I, I can't. I'm in shock. I don't know what this word is. And that extends to a lot of uh, groups that are living in other countries where the language of the country is not their first language and people will come up with this without problem often. All right, we're getting into the end of the, our conversation, but I want you to tell us where can people find your work? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? Tell us a little bit where can people continue to follow then the work you're doing 
online, you find us on www.agenda.fi. Uh, that's mainly in Finnish and Swedish, but we do have an English section as well for our English publications, which we uh, do in, in uh, conjunction with ELF. And you find us on Twitter, agenda underscore FI. And it's the same thing on Instagram, agenda uh, underscore FI. And on Facebook, we're uh, agenda. We're going to put all these links in the description of the podcast. I will have you back again to talk about journalism because I think that is another area that needs a lot of attention and a lot of work. But for now, I'm going to thank you so much for coming to the podcast, Ted. Thanks for having me, Ricardo. I'm back, and before we go to this week's ELF events, I would like to tell you that we are now also on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher, and if you like our podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review, and that way you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. Now for some of the events organized by ELF for this first two weeks of November. On the 1st of November, in Prague in the Czech Republic, we have, for a free and secure Europe, cybersecurity. This event is also organized by VVD International and it brings together politicians, representatives from civil society and liberal think tanks from Western, Central and Southeastern Europe and also the United States. This is a series of seminars and roundtables to exchange knowledge and best practices and how to offer a global perspective on keeping European citizens both secure and free. And then on the 7th and the 8th of November, in London, United Kingdom, we have young liberals taking charge of Europe. We are all Europeans. The seminar, which precedes the Limec Autumn Congress, will focus on post-Brexit EU-UK relationships, and particularly on how young Brits who overwhelmingly voted in favor of remaining in the European Union will work with other young European liberals in a way that we can shape the future of Europe when the United Kingdom will no longer be a part of the European Union. And then on the following day, the 9th, also in London and also organized by LIMEC, we have a liberal vision for Europe. How will Europe look like in the future? Which path can we choose to get there? What policies should be applied? The answers will be given at the book lunch of the publication of A Liberal Future for Europe. Politicians, alumni of LIMEC, young writers will be able to discuss and share their views creating an open space for dialogue and strategic planning. This is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast, it's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.